Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast live from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster and the moderator of today's forum with our guest speaker, Robert Putnam. We have been offering forums at Westminster as a public service for 25 years, bringing conversation on critical issues into the public arena in an atmosphere of tolerance and mutual respect. Our forums are free and open to the public, and we invite listeners on Minnesota Public Radio to join us in person. Visit our website at ewestminster.org to learn about upcoming forums. It's my pleasure to welcome the fourth speaker in our spring series, At Home in America. Robert Putnam is the Peter and Isabel Malkin Professor of Public Policy at Harvard University. He has served as Dean of the John F. Kennedy School of Government and is past president of the American Political Science Association. Dr. Putnam founded the Sawaro Seminar on Civic Engagement, a gathering of leading thinkers from various fields who have developed a national plan for civic renewal. He is the author of a dozen books, including the two which inspired today's forum, Bowling Alone, the Collapse and Revival of American Community, and Better Together, Restoring the American Community. In Better Together, Dr. Putnam comments that in the last few decades, Americans join less, trust less, give less, vote less, and schmooze less. In his presentation today, Community Engagement in a Changing America, Dr. Putnam will explore the reasons for the decline of community in America and offer hope for rebuilding our country's social capital. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Robert Putnam. Thank you all. Thank you all very much. It's um, a great pleasure for me to be back in the Twin Cities um, back in Minnesota and to have a chance to talk with you and with the uh, audience listening on NPR. Um, it's a treat always for me to come and talk to folks in Minnesota about um, community, the values of community, because more than most places in America, a lot of value has been given historically to community and connectedness and civic responsibility in this part of the world. Um, so I know in some sense I'm, I'm um, preaching to the choir. Um, here's what I'd like to talk about, if I can, this morning. I'd like to ask four questions. First of all, what's been happening to the state of our connections with one another in America over the course of the last 30 or 40 years? Our friendships and our involvement in community affairs and our ties to our family and, and so on. And secondly, because the answer to, the, the answer to that first question, you've, you've already, it's already been given away. By many different measures, um, Americans have become disconnected from one another over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And so the second question will be, well, why is that? What could possibly explain that change? Because it is a change. Americans historically, and even within living memory, Americans were becoming more and more connected, and then suddenly that changed. So the second question will be, why did that happen? The third question that I want to address is, well, so what? I mean, who cares if we don't know our neighbor? Or who cares if we don't, you know, people don't go to the, 
moose club uh, uh, or the garden club anymore uh, isn't worrying about community involvement, a kind of a, you know, a misplaced nostalgia for the 1950s. If we thought about it, maybe we really wouldn't want to go back there. And I'm going to try to there, in that portion of the remarks, argue briefly, but, but uh, forcefully, that it matters a lot uh, in measurable ways, whether we connect with one another. And so that will lead naturally to the last uh, question that I want to talk about, um, which is, what do we do about it? Um, and, and so that's my plan for this morning. But in my uh, day job, I'm a professor. And I thought you might not um, believe that if I didn't offer just a word or two about social theory. Um, so I want to introduce just one social science uh, concept. I hope it will be um, useful for our conversation. And the idea that I want to introduce is the concept of social capital. Social capital. You all know what uh, physical capital is. That's just a physical tool like a, a screwdriver or, or, a, you know, or a manufacturing plant or a hydroelectric dam. And so we, we, we save up our pennies and we invest in a screwdriver and we can repair more, you know, more bicycles more quickly with that tool. It's an, it, it improves our efficiency. Uh, economists uh, 30 years ago began talking about human capital to refer to training and education. So just as you could invest in a physical tool, you could also invest in training and education. And that, too, would make you more efficient, more productive. And those of us who are studying social capital are saying, well, that's true, all that's right. But it's also true that there are features of our communities that are like that. If you, the same you with the same physical tools and the same training, have the good fortune to work in an organization or to live in a community where people are connected with one another in productive ways, you can get more done than if you had the misfortune to live in a community or to work in an organization where you couldn't count on people to pitch in and help out. The core idea of, of social capital is so simple, I'm almost embarrassed to, um, to say it. So it is this, that social networks have value. Social networks have value to us in many different ways. They have, first of all, value to the people who are in the networks. Lots of examples of that. Um, one, for example, is that most people in America, uh, including me, uh, get their jobs more through whom they know than through what they know. I'm not talking about nepotism. I'm just saying, you know, you, uh, you hear about a job because a friend of yours says they're looking for a, they're looking for a clerk down at the bank or a job hears about you. Um, and uh, and be through some network of friendships. And um, there's an economist, actually, at the University of Chicago Business School who's calculated, in terms of your lifetime income, the dollar value of your address book. And for most Americans, the dollar value of their address book, address book is greater than the dollar value of all their degrees. And in that sense, social capital, social connections has material value. Now, there are a lot of other ways in which networks have value to people who are in the networks. I'm going to talk maybe briefly about some of those later. But the more interesting thing is that social networks also often have value for bystanders, not just for the people who are in the networks, but for, for, for bystanders. There are a lot of examples of this, too. One of them I'm particularly conscious of at this moment comes from the fact that sociologists have taught us that the best predictor of a low crime rate in a neighborhood is how many neighbors know one another's first name. If in a neighborhood where there's a, people are connected with one another, that has the effect of deterring uh, crime. Now, I, my wife and I have the good fortune to live in a neighborhood in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where there's a whole lot of social capital. People are all the time having you know, picnics and barbecues and sledding parties and skating parties and so on. 
And I'm able to be here in Minnesota right now, confident that at this very moment, back in Cambridge, my home is being protected by all of that social capital in our neighborhood. Even though, and this is now the moment for confession, I actually never go to any of the picnics and barbecues and, and sledding parties. <laughs> I'm, I'm not proud of that fact. I'm certainly not bragging about it. I'm on the road a lot. Um, but I'm able to benefit from the networks even though I'm not in those networks. And so what I've just finished saying, if you, you know, in the, in the language of economics, is that social networks have externalities. That is, they have effects on bystanders. And they have, networks have so many interesting, surprising consequences. Um, th th almost magical consequences. And, and one reason that they do is that um, it, well, it turns out that in an organization or in a um, community where people are connected with one another in productive ways, what tends to evolve is a norm of generalized reciprocity. I know that's a kind of a jawbreaker. That just means I'll do this for you now without expecting something back from you because down the road he'll do something for me and you'll do something for him or you'll do something for him and he'll do something for him. And anyhow, we'll all see each other at choir practice on, uh, on Thursday. The, the core idea of, of, um, of reciprocity actually was best explained uh, by a philosopher from um, New York City that some of you will have heard of. Uh, his name is um, Yogi uh, Berra. And, and Yogi said, if you don't go to someone's funeral, they won't come to yours. <laughs> it's actually a deep thought. The longer you, longer you think about that, the deeper that thought uh, becomes. And Yogi captured the core idea of reciprocity and therefore captured the core idea of social capital and that's the end of the lecture, or that's the end of the academic part of the lecture. So what, what I've said so far is social capital is just the word we use for social networks and the norms of reciprocity that enable us to be more productive and efficient and, and happier because we, we live in an organization, we live in, in a community or work in an organization where people are connected with one another. Now, suppose I ask you, what if, think, about, think about some community you know well, maybe, maybe Minneapolis or maybe some other community that you know well, what have been the trends in social capital in that community? How would you, how would you figure that out? I mean, you, you, could, you, know, you could ask somebody who'd been around for a long time, but people's memories are notoriously fallible and there's always the risk of nostalgia. And anyhow, what I do for a living is to count things. Um, and so what could you count that would let you know what the trends are in social capital in, uh, say, in the Twin Cities? If you think about that very long, pretty soon it'll occur to you, as it eventually occurred to me, well, a lot of the social capital in a community is embodied in organizations, and organizations keep membership records, and we could look at trends in membership records as a, as a way of getting a, a, a fix on what have been the trends in social capital. Not, not, all, not all social capital is organizational. You know, it could be informal ties too, but a lot of it is, and so we could use, that as a, use this membership record idea as a way of getting a fix on the long-run trends. Now, we wouldn't want to know just how many members there were, say, in the PTA uh, year by year. We'd want to know, of all the people who could have joined, how many did. We, in other words, we want to, wouldn't want to have the number just go up just because there was a baby boom, because then therefore more parents. But we want to know, of all the parents, let's say, in America, year by year, what fraction of them, over the course of the 20th century, belonged to the PTA? Of all the kids in America, over the course of the 20th century, year by year, what fraction belonged to the scouts? Of all of the um, doctors in America, what fraction belonged to the AMA? Of all of the, 
um, Jewish women in America year by year, what fraction belonged to, the, to Hadassah, the Jewish women's organization. Of all of the um, middle-aged men in America uh, year by year, what fraction belonged to one of the uh, animal uh, clubs, uh, that is men's organizations. Um, no, no, that's a technical term. Uh, it, it refers to the fact that all men's organizations in America are named for animals. The Lions Club and the Moose Club and the Elks Club and the Eagles Club and so on, the raccoons. Um, so we wanted to measure the trends in membership in the animal clubs and all those other organizations that I just described, you know, the, what fraction of the African Americans belong to the NAACP and so on. And we added them all up and we looked across the whole of the 20th century and for most of the 20th century, that number was rising and rising and rising. More Americans year by year, more parents in the, scout, in, the, in, the in PTA, more kids in the Scouts, more doctors in the EMA, and so on. There's, oh, there's actually only one exception uh, to the general rise, rise, not just a nation of joiners, but getting more and more joining for most of the 20th century. The exception basically is, is between 1930 and 1935, there was a big dip, but then coming out of the Depression, and especially coming out of World War II, probably the greatest civic boom in American history. Most organizations in America in the 20 years after 1945 doubled uh, their market share. And, uh, and because the number of people was growing, the number, absolute number of members of the, uh, say, the PTA was just skyrocketing. Every year, hundreds of thousands of more people belonged to that organization and other organizations. And then suddenly, silently, mysteriously, all of those organizations began to experience leveling membership, and then slumping membership, and then plunging membership, until by the end of the 20th century, we're back down to depression levels in terms of membership in all those organizations. And mostly that occurred in the late, late 60s, early 70s, that, that trend, difference in trend. Um, not, a, not every organization hit the peak at exactly the same time. The first organization to hit the peak actually was the American Medical Association, the fraction of doctors who belonged to the AMA hit its peak in um, about 1957, the last organization to hit, it, hit the peak, um, appropriately enough, was um, the Optimists. Um, they, they, they hit the peak in 1980, but then they just plunged and they're now down back with the, the rest of us. And, um, and I believe that that, that that is a basic kind of trend in social capital in America over the course of the 20th century. But I know this is an intelligent group, a group and I, therefore I know that um, Several doubts have, have already occurred, in your, to, occurred to you to wonder whether, in fact, organizational membership is the right way of measuring trends in social capital. First of all, it's only card-carrying membership. doesn't say anything about whether people show up. Secondly, um, uh, it's, it's all, every organization that we've looked at that in this context are all old organizations. They've all been around for 100 years. That's how we, we, that wasn't a mistake. We did that so we could see long-run trends, but maybe all that describes is that, that these animal clubs and so on are the old-fashioned organizations. We could call them the funny hat um, organizations. So maybe we've stopped belonging to funny hat organizations, but we're joining something else instead. Maybe we're joining, I don't know, New Age poetry groups or Alcoholics Anonymous or something. So may, maybe we're still joining, just not joining those old groups. And thirdly, you would say, and you'd be right about this, wait a minute, you just told me not, not more than you know, three minutes ago that not all social capital is organizational. I mean, cheers, the bar where everyone knows your name. Pure social capital. I mean, actually it isn't, it's a TV show, but if it were a real place, it would be real social capital. So maybe we've stopped going to the Elks Club, but we're going to bars more. Or, we're, you know, we're going on picnics, uh, or we're having friends over to the house. So maybe we're connecting, just not in the organizational ways. Now, I've known for a long time that that was a possibility. But um, remember, what I do for a living is to count things, 
and I could not, for the life of me, figure out where the National Picnic Archive uh, was kept. So I couldn't figure out how would we know whether we were going on more or fewer picnics than our, than our parents did. And then the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me, at least in my professional life, I discovered two massive new data archives. And you're saying to yourself, this guy's a little weird. Uh, he gets off on data. Um, and that's true, I, I do. And, and I'd like to try to excite you with some of this uh, evidence. Um, uh, the first of these uh, archives comes from, um, uh, from uh, a set of surveys done every year by, um, by the Roper Polling Organization. They've asked Americans uh, every month for the last 35 years a set of questions about uh, their, um, their civic, uh, civic engagement. Actually, let me ask you a couple of these questions just so you get an idea. Let me see your hands. How many of you have, in the course of the last 12 months, been to any public meeting where people talked about town affairs or school affairs, local affairs. Let me see your hands if you've been, oh, gracious. Um, okay, it looks like it's about 80%. Um, okay, keep your hands down now. I'm, I'm, um, uh, let me see your hands if you have, in the course of the last 12 months, been an officer or a committee member of any local organization. Let me see your hands. Oh my goodness, this, I'm now getting intimidated. That's another 80%. Uh, this may be the most civic room in America at this moment. <laughs> Um, okay, well now keep your hands down, because I, I, but I will keep uh, asking the questions. Uh, have you in the course of the last 12 months um, signed a petition? No, keep your hands down. Um, uh, have, have you in the course of the last 12 months run for office? Now not that many Americans run for office, but this is a humongously large survey archive. A half million Americans have been asked these questions over this, over this period. So we can get good estimates of long run trends, even in quite rare behavior like running for office. And I can summarize for you very quickly the results of this first uh, survey archive. Every single one of the dozen different ways of being involved in communities that are measured in this survey, every single one is down big time. Um, in in uh, 1973, 23% uh, of Americans um, said they'd been um, to, um, uh, to some public meeting in the previous 12 months. That's now down to about 10%. Uh, in this room, as I say, it was about 85%. Uh, you're kind of weird, too. I'm, I mean that in the nicest possible way. Um, uh, the, the, the fraction of Americans who have been an officer or committee member has fallen over the last 25 years from about 15% uh, to about 7% of Americans. A decline of about, about half. And I can summarize this, the results very simply. Over the course of the last quarter of the 20th century, in communities all across America, about half of the civic infrastructure, half of all the clubs and the meetings and the petitions and so on, half of all the civic infrastructure in communities all over America, America simply evaporated. That is, however, not the most interesting of the, of the two archives that we discovered. We also discovered that a marketing firm in Chicago called the DDB uh, Needham Company uh, has been gathering every year since 1975 a set of surveys about uh, people's consumer preferences. They're an advertising firm, so they ask, every year they ask a large number of Americans, you know, do you prefer, prefer Nike or Adidas uh, running shoes, or do you prefer, if you like yogurt, do you prefer Yoplait or Danon, that kind of question. But they began in 1975 asking people um, also a set of questions about their lifestyle, because if you're writing an ad for yogurt, you need to know something more about your audience besides the fact that they eat yogurt. I mean, are yogurt eaters, do they play cards a lot, or do they swim a lot, or you know, what do they pray a lot? What are, what's the, what are yogurt eaters like? And in order to do that, 
for their ad advertising writers, they began gathering a lot of data on people's lifestyle. And they, and they asked a lot of questions that had the following form. Um, over the last 12 months, um, how many times in the last 12 months did you go to church, for example? Um, one of their big uh, clients is the Hallmark greeting card company, and they had the idea, which turns out to be true, that people who go to church more often uh, send more greeting cards. So how many, how many times last year they said, did you go to a club meeting, any kind of a club meeting? How many times last year did you volunteer? Um, how many times last year um, did you um, go on a picnic? I had discovered the National Picnic Archive. Um, <laughs> and I can tell you as a matter of certified fact that in 1975, the average American went on five picnics. Last year, the average American went on two picnics. America's in the midst of a little recognized national picnic crisis. Um, how many times last year they asked, did you go to a dinner party? How many times last year did you have friends over to the house? Um, how many times uh, last year did you give the finger to another driver? How did you know what I meant by that? Actually, I wasn't sure whether a Minnesota nice audience would know what, know what I meant by that. Um, I mean, I'm way off topic here, but it's, it is kind of uh, uh, in interesting. Um, uh, one of the other questions asked in this uh, survey is about uh, tax evasion. And by far, out of the thousands of questions in this survey, by far the best predictor of tax evasion is the number of times you gave the finger to another driver. Um, I had a great idea for the IRS, actually, about how to identify uh, tax cheats, uh, cameras along highways. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll get serious here and get more in tune with the, the, uh, the environment. Um, okay, well, you can see what, what this survey does is allow us to get me measures, real measures, not just re remembering you know, how many picnics we used to go on, but actually comparing how many picnics we now, this year, go on compared to what people just like us said um, uh, 25 or 30 years ago. And again, the results are easy to sum summarize. Every single one of the dozens and dozens of different forms of social connection measured in this survey is down big time. Going to club meetings is down by about 60%. Uh, I've already said going, on, going to picnics is down uh, by about, uh, also by about 60%. Um, going to uh, dinner parties is also off, by, dinner parties are also off by about 60%. Actually, that was kind of comforting to my wife, uh, Rosemary, and me, because we've actually not been invited to a dinner party for the last uh, 15 years, and it's comforting to us to know that not, none of you are going to dinner parties uh, either. But okay, dinner parties kind of sounds a little 1950s. But I mean, how about just having friends come to your house? You know, to sit by the pool, or to play pool, or to watch TV, or just to hang out. I mean, that doesn't sound so old-fashioned. And yet, what these surveys show is there's been a decline of about 45% in the frequency. In, in 1975, the average American had people come to their home um, about uh, 14 times a year, a little more than one a month. And by the end of the century, that had fallen to about uh, seven, seven times a year. So a decline of half in just having people come to your house. Um, uh, card playing is another big form of connection. Um, now, uh, um, Card playing, I have to say, used to be one of the most common forms of social connection in America. Uh, I mean, of course, some people play solitaire, but mostly people who are playing cards are playing it with other people. In, in 1957, 1957, 40% of all American adults played bridge regularly. Last year, that figure was 6%. Uh, all of them are in retirement uh, communities. Um, if you say bridge to a group of undergraduates, 
now, any place in America, it sounds to them the way whist does to people of my generation. That is, it's a game you've heard of, but you can't imagine any breathing person uh, playing it. And so there's been a decline of in, in, in round numbers of about 50% in the frequency with which we play cards. Now, why, why do I use, use these kind of examples, picnics and bridge games and, and uh, dinner parties and so on? It, it's, it, of course, the reason is, I mean, I could show you the same picture, describe the same picture of rising and then declining political involvement. Um, in fact, the, the, the uh, trends in turnout in, uh, in American elections follow that same pattern. They rise for the first part of the 20th century, they peak in 1964, and then they decline after 1964. Exactly the same picture. But if I, if I talked to you about voting turnout, you would be inclined to think, well, I know what the explanation for that is. That's just Vietnam and Watergate and, and so on and political scandals. And so, and I can believe that actually maybe the reason that at least until last November people were no longer voting as much is because they were upset about um, about uh, political corruption or scandals or whatever. It's harder for me to believe that people have stopped going on picnics because they're still mad at Dick Nixon. Um, <laughs> however, and, and what I mean by that, this is, this is unlikely to be largely a political phenomenon. It also applies, I should say, uh, to religious involvement. And, and uh, that's important not merely because we're currently in a church, but also because as a rough rule of thumb, half of all Social capital in America is religious. Half of all volunteering, half of all philanthropy, half of all, um, uh, half of all organizational memberships are religious, actually. I don't mean just belonging to church, but you know, Bible study groups and, and prayer groups and so on. And um, so it matters a lot uh, what the trends have been in our religious behavior, not whether we believe in God, but whether we actually show up, whether we come to services. And if you look at trends in, um, in church going or trends in, in, in national polls about um, the standard question is, did you go to church last week? That's the way pollsters have generally asked this question. And for most of the 20th century, that's rising, actually. And then just about the same time that we stopped going, in, in the middle 60s, just about the same time that we stopped going to uh, church so much, uh, sorry, started, stopped voting so much and stopped going to the PTA so much and so on, we also stopped going to church quite so much. And the data suggest, roughly speaking, a decline of about 25% uh, in church going. Actually, that figure probably understates the total decline in church going over the last 30 years because sociologists have recently taken to doing a rather interesting kind of study. They ask people the standard question, did you go to church last week? And then they check to see, were you actually in the pews? Um, and there are two interesting findings from this uh, work. First of all, lots of us, lots of us misremember uh, whether it really was last week that we were at church. Twice as many of us say that we were in church last week as actually were in the pews. And secondly, there's some evidence that we are misremembering more than our parents did in response to the same question. So if you do go to church now, there are more phantoms sitting beside you in the pews, that is, people who think that they're there but really aren't, um, and the phantoms are counted in these surveys. So if you took account of the phantoms, the, the decline would be even greater. Now, um, the same trends, I should say, also apply to many other features of American communities. Americans are, a, compared to other countries, a giving people. We give away a larger fraction of our income than most other people in the world. But comparing us to our, not, not to other people, but to ourselves and to our, our parents, the trend in, in philanthropy as a fraction of, of our income shows exactly the same trend. It rises from the, the first part of the century until 1964. And then the same year that we stopped going to church and stopped going to the PTA and so on, we also stopped um, being so generous. and. Um, and, and it 
and, and as I say, there are many, many other, I won't bore you with any more of these, these uh, statistics, but many, many different trends show that, that for most of the 20th century, we're becoming more connected, and then in the last part of the 20th century, dramatically, this long-run characteristic of America as a, as a nation of joiners changed sometime in the period between roughly 1965 and 1975, and, then all, and it's continued to go down steadily since then. Um, and obviously, not every single club in America lost membership, and not every single church lost membership. There have been some growing ones and some declining ones, but when you add up the ones that are growing and the ones that are declining, the net change is the, is the one that I've described. Um, well, in the, I'm going to be brief here at the end because I do want to make sure that we leave lots of time for questions, but I, um, I did have, you remember, I had three other questions I told you I was going to ans ask, and I'm going to try to sketch what, those answer, what the answers to those questions might be as well. First question, what's what's been happening in civ to civic engagement in America? And you now have that picture. It rises for the first two-thirds of the 20th century and then declines in picnics and in church going and in voting and in club membership and in social trust even. Um, now, if we, if we had more time, it would be really interesting to ask, why is that? What could possibly have caused that change? Uh, and this is a mystery, you know, the, the, mur the murder mystery by Agatha Christie, Murder on the Orient Express. And if you've read that or seen the movie, you know that the answer to the question, who done it, is basically everybody done it, or there are multiple culprits. And this is a case like that. There are multiple causes of this change. Um, and uh, my best guess is that uh, part of it turns out to be uh, suburbanization and, uh, and commuting times. There's a, there's, as a rough rule of thumb, every 10 minutes more commu commuting time cuts all forms of social interaction by 10%. And 20 minutes more commuting time means 20% less of all those things. Um, uh, part of the story, um, well, the internet actually has nothing to do with causing this story because the trends began going down 30 years before most people had computers. So this is not mainly a story in which the internet caused the problem, um, or computers even caused the problem. I mean, a different question is whether the internet is going to make the problem better or make the problem worse. And the answer to that question is yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, maybe during the question period we can talk a little bit more about computers. Another part of the question, another part of the explanation, I think, has to do with the changing structure of American of the American workplace uh, and the and the rise of two career families. My daughter is a um, a professional woman and a mom, and someone that I'm very close to. And she has she says I have to be really careful in the next two sentences so that I don't give you the impression that she personally is responsible for the collapse of American um, civilization. But it is true for guys my age that our moms were great social capitalists. And our wives and our daughters are doing other great things instead. And there's only 24 hours in the day. And we guys have not picked up the slack. And so part of this is a story of two career families, but it's a much smaller part of the story than most people think. Um, uh, you can see the same downtrend among stay-at-home moms. Actually, the trend is, is even worse among stay-at-home moms. And you can see it among unmarried men and, and so on. So it's, this is not mainly a story of women going to work outside the home. Um, that's, a, that's a minor contributing factor. Um, television is a different matter, actually. Television is a big part of the story. Uh, I don't like saying that because I don't like being a cultural grouch. Um, but, um, and, and I have to say, watching, watching public affairs television, watching the news, is actually good for your civic health. But most Americans don't watch uh, the news. Most Americans watch Friends rather than having uh, Friends. Um, and, and commercial entertainment television is demonstrably lethal for social uh, connection, social capital. Um, 
you know, the way that a, the way that a um, social scientist tries to solve a problem like this is to, is to look for hotspots in the population and, or to look, alternatively look for um, uh, places in the population that have been immune to the, to, the, um, to the disease. That's the way an epidemiologist tries to solve the mystery of an epidemic, and that's the way I tried to solve this mystery, and I look for places in the population that had not been affected by, um, by uh, this decline in social connectivity. Uh, but it's really tough because the trends are down everywhere. The trends are down among rich folks and down among poor folks and down about the same. They're down among uh, PhDs and they're down among high school dropouts and they're down on the East Coast and they're down on the West Coast and they're down in middle America and they're down in Minneapolis. I mean, they're down all over. The trends are down uh, among men and down among women and down among white folks and down among non-white folks and the trends are down everywhere. There's only one exception. The trends are not down among older people where older means older than me. Um, actually, that's what the word older always means. It means, if you listen carefully, it means older than the speaker. Um, and what the data show is that the group of Americans who came of age before or during World War II, what Brokaw calls the greatest generation, um, what I call the long civic generation, that group of Americans born in the first third of the 20th century um, it's basically my parents' generation. It's the parents' generation of, of, or grandparents' generation of some people here in the room. It's some people in the room are from that generation. But that generation, all their lives, statistically speaking, were astonishing. All their lives, that generation of Americans joined more than anybody else. They um, went to church more than anybody else. They voted more than anybody else. They schmoozed more, they trusted more, they gave more, they gave more money, they gave more time, they gave more blood. That generation of people were truly astonishing, are truly astonishing um, in, their, uh, in their civic involvement. But they did not, this is the only problem, they did not pass those habits onto their children, the boomers, and onto their grandchildren. And much of the decline in social connections in America is simply generational arithmetic because we're now a smaller and smaller fraction of our total population is comprised of people from that generation, and a larger and larger fraction of, are, are comprised of younger people who are wonderful people. It's my own kids. It's not, I'm, not, I'm not blaming my kids for this, but they don't have their grandparents' habits, uh, and, and neither do the boomers. The big, the big drop is actually not between the boomers and their kids. It's between the, the, the long civic or the, the greatest generation and the, and the boomers. That's where the, the big, big drop comes. Um, Okay, but now quickly to the third question. So what? Who cares? I mean, why would we even worry? Putnam, stop hyperventilating about, you know, the Elks Club. Um, and I want to say now very briefly but firmly, it matters a lot in measurable ways whether we connect with our neighbors and friends. Um, I've already told you the best predictor of a low crime rate in a neighborhood is how many neighbors connect with each other. Uh, same thing is true for schools. The best predictor of test scores in a school district is not how much money is spent on the schools, but rather how much parental and community involvement in the schools there are. That's, and what, what's now called a schools problem in America nationwide largely is not a schools problem, it's a parents problem, parents on average. Not every parent, obviously, but on average parents have pulled out of schools. Um, many other examples, there's the higher rate of political corruption, and the government doesn't work as well where, where people are less connected with, um, with, the, with their community. Uh, but I want to just close by saying there are powerful physical health effects from social connection or social isolation. Your life expectancy is affected by how much you connect. And, and here the research is really quite good and it controls for a lot of other things. Holding constant, all of the other things that affect your life expectancy. You know, holding constant your age and your gender and whether you jog and whether you smoke and so on. Your chances of dying 
actually your chances of dying are high. Um, your, your chances of dying over the next year are cut in half by joining one group, cut in three quarters by joining two groups. As a risk factor for premature death, social isolation, I don't mean living in a cave someplace, I mean just not knowing your neighbors or not being involved in community life. Social isolation is as big a risk factor for premature death as smoking. So if you smoke and belong to no groups, it's a close call as to which is the more dangerous behavior. And if you do smoke, by all means, you should join a couple of groups to make up for that um, fact. Um, I'm, I'm on the verge here of practicing medicine without a license. Um, but what I really want to say is, it matters in measurable ways. Worrying about community connections and their disappearance is not just a matter of false or misplaced nostalgia. It, our communities don't work as well. Our bodies don't work as well when we're not connected. So it matters to ask, how do we fix the problem? Now, I don't know for sure how to fix it, but I do have a way in conclusion here of trying to think about the problem of, of how you fix this. In a nutshell, what I've said is that over the course of the last generation, a variety of Technological and economic and social changes to career families and urban sprawl and TV and so on um, have rendered obsolete a stock of our social capital. That's just jargon for saying, uh, you know, two career families and TV and urban sprawl and so on mean we no longer feel comfortable going, to, going on picnics or going, going to the uh, moose club or whatever. And I think bad things are flow, flow from that. Now, go back with me 100 years. We got out of the time machine. We're, we're here in Minneapolis. Uh, it's 1905. Uh, if you found yourself in that position, of course, the first thing you would ask is, how is social capital doing? And, and what you would find is, the same thing was true then. America, 100 years ago, had just been through 30 or 40 years of technological and economic change that had rendered obsolete a stock of their social capital, which is jargon, in that case, for saying the Industrial Revolution and urbanization and immigration meant that when people left the village and moved to the city, whether the village was someplace, you know, in Iowa or, 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 um, or, or northern Minnesota, or the village was in Italy or, or, or Russia or wherever the village was, and they moved to the city, they'd left a lot of their family and community institutions behind. And quilting bees and barn raisings didn't cut it as a, as a way of making community in, in uh, the new urban places people lived. And America, at the turn of the last century, suffered from all of the same symptoms of a social capital deficit that we do today. High and rising crime rates, a growing gap between rich and poor, a sense of political corruption and degradation, a sense that our cities were not working as they should. A lot of, it felt, it felt to them the way our lives feel to many of us. That is, we were much, they were much better off with material goods than, they, than their parents had been. They had telephones and cars and so on. They were, they were mostly better off materially, but they felt disconnected. And they described their life in that way. And much of the problem was what, I, what I'm calling, in my jargon, a social capital deficit. And then they fixed the problem. They fixed it. In a very short period of time, at the turn of the last century, roughly between 1890 and 1910, most of the major civic institutions in American communities today were invented. Look at the founding dates, the Boy Scouts, and the Red Cross, and the League of Women Voters, and the NAACP, and the Urban League, and the Knights of Columbus, and Rotary, and Adassa, and Kiwanis, and, and, and. It's hard, most labor unions. It's hard to name a major community institution in America today that was not invented in that very short period of time. Now, if you'd been around then, it would have been tempting to say, indeed, some people did say, life was much nicer back on the farm where everybody knew everybody. Everybody back to the farms, please. 
But that's not what they did. What they did instead was to invent new ways of connecting that fit the way they had come to live. Similarly, if you look at all those down, downtrends that I've been just talking about, you might be tempted to say, indeed to my horror, some people have thought I was saying, life was much nicer back in the 50s. Would all women please report to the kitchen um, and turn off the TV, he said in a kind of grouchy way. And that's not what I'm saying. That's not, you understand, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that in some sense, we need to reinvent Kiwanis or the Y or something. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about those organizations. I'm not even necessarily saying we have to invent organizations this time. That organizations may not be the right new form of connection. It may involve the internet or it may involve, uh, you know, some new forms of religious organization or whatever. I'm, what I am saying is the task before us is to, is to reconceive how we connect and not just assume we don't need to connect, but also not try to just go back to the 50s. We have to figure out new ways of, of connecting. One final qualification to everything I've said. I've been talking all this time about social capital as if it were just a single thing. You can have a lot of it or a little. But that's an oversimplification. There are different kinds of social networks. And one of the most important distinctions is between social connections that link you to other people like yourself and social connections that link you to people unlike you. And the first, the, the connections to people who are like you is sociologists call bonding social capital and the connections to people unlike you they call bridging social capital. And so, so for me, my, my um, ties to other uh, white, male, uh, elderly uh, professors are my uh, bonding social capital and my ties to people of a different generation or a different race or a different gender or whatever are my bridging social capital. I'm not saying bridging good, bonding bad, because if you get sick, the people who bring you chicken soup will represent your bonding social capital. But I am saying that a society that has only bonding social capital and no bridging looks like Bosnia or Belfast or Beirut, where I was a couple of weeks ago. So we need both bonding and bridging social capital. So far, so good, except that Bridging social capital is harder to build than bonding social capital. Your grandmother knew that. Your grandmother told you, birds of a feather flock together. What she meant was, bridging social capital is harder to build than bonding social capital. She didn't think you'd understand that, which is why she used the, the uh, avian metaphor. So, okay, here's the assignment. You knew that I was a professor, right? And you therefore knew that professors give assignments. Over the next 10 years or so, we as a country, and you here in Minnesota, have got to be creative and invent some new ways, new forms of social capital, new forms of connection with one another, and especially bridging social capital because our society is becoming much more diverse very rapidly, and the only way we can deal productively with that is to figure out ways of connecting with people who are not like us, and not just with people who are like us. Um, now I know that's a tough assignment, but on the other hand, Professors often pay close attention to, the, to their classes. I have some easier assignments that I give to my B and C students, but I know that all Minnesotans on this field are A students, uh, and you're all above average, I know that. Um, and therefore, I've given you one of the tough assignments. Uh, I look forward to reading your papers. Thank you very much for your attention.
You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast live from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm your host, Tim Hart Anderson, and our guest is Robert Putnam. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster for the second part or the latter part of this program, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's Town Hall Forum, the General Mills Foundation and the Nash, Baker, and Hognander Family Foundations. I also want to thank the many generous individuals whose support has kept this 25-year tradition free and open to the public. Our next forum is Thursday, May 19th with David Hemingway speaking on private guns, public health, and we invite you to listen on NPR or to stop in and see where it all happens in our beautiful church on Nicollet Mall. And now, Dr. Putnam, if you would return to the pulpit, we'll test your improvisational skills, which I gather are quite well honed with some questions from the audience. Are you ready? I am. All right, Our first question. I was wondering if you could speak to any international trends of involvement in social capital. Excellent question. Uh, we've looked pretty carefully at this. The trends are not so clear outside the United States. Some things are true in all advanced industrial countries, there, uh, Europe and, and elsewhere. Um, church uh, attendance is down everywhere in the advanced uh, industrial world um, and across different different denominations. Um, political party uh, political participation, including party participation, is down everywhere. The British are having an election right today, and and we don't know for sure what the turnout will be. But all the projections are for another low in in uh, political participation in, in electoral turnout there. Union membership is down everywhere. Now, we don't know for sure in other countries about things like picnics, because we just happen to have good data on picnics uh, in the United States. Um, so the trends are not quite so clear outside the United States. But I think what, what, what I think and what the political leaders that I speak with abroad think is that the United States is just about 10, year, 10 or 15 years ahead of the rest of the world in these trends. And that's not so surprising because t commercial TV arrived earlier here, two-career families arrived earlier here, suburbanization arrived earlier here. So you would expect that we would be a little further in front in these, um, in these downtrends. Uh, now, maybe, they'll have, maybe it'll turn out that this was a uniquely American disease, um, that we just somehow caught it and that we'll have to fix it ourselves. But most people that I talk to in Europe and in Australia and New Zealand and so on don't think that. They think we are just a little bit ahead of the curve. I mean, the down curve, and therefore we're going to have, to, they're looking to us to see what we can come up with. Several questions about computers and the internet. Can you say more about uh, the role of the burgeoning use of computers and the internet in the building of social capital? Sure. Um, well, I think the real question is, as I said earlier, whether the internet's going to make the problem better or worse. And the internet actually has some um, interesting features that make it quite useful from a social network point of view. First of all, it is a network, and therefore you actually can connect with other people. Um, and the, the internet has within it the potential of being both, or either, a nifty TV or a nifty telephone. Um, and by that I mean the internet could be just one more screen in front of which we sit and are entertained. Uh, and if all you're doing is surfing the web, that's probably, it probably has that effect, and that means it's going to have television-like effects on social capital, and that's unfortunate. On the other hand, the, the internet also has a capacity to be a way of actually communicating with other people. And some of the things we do with uh, the internet um, can actually, like a telephone, extend and expand and deepen our connections with other real people. I mean, we don't usually make new friends on the telephone. 
we usually, I mean, it's possible there are services that are available that you can call to get new friends, but I don't think anybody here would use those. Um, and, um, uh, but mostly we use the telephone not as separate from our real face-to-face -face connections, but as part of our networks. It's a kind of an alloy, and I mean, an alloy, in other words, between the, 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 the electronic and the, and the real connections. And email is like that. Email is a very positive, from my point of view, a very positive development because it enables you to connect with other people that you really do know. Um, and to strengthen those ties. My daughter that I mentioned before for a long time lived in Costa Rica. She's an author and I'm an author and we use uh, email a lot and she lived there for 10 years and I'm sure that we are much closer because of email and the fact that we could all the time correspond with email than we would have been without email. I did not meet my daughter on the internet. Um, <laughs> by, by that I mean this was a connection that I already had and so I think that the real, the real secret here to making the internet part of the solution is to think of ways in which we can use internet and other electronic technologies, I mean, you know, all this, there's a lot of new stuff coming out, and, and, and use those in ways of strengthening real connections. And there are some interesting examples of that, uh, some of which I talk about in the, in the new book called Better Together. But I think we're still early in the process, and I think there's a whole lot of room for creativity, for figuring out how to use internet technology to strengthen real face-to-face -face ties and not, not to create some kind of artificial and not very, not very substantial uh, virtual community. We just have time for one more question. In fact, there are several of them about public policy. Can you suggest a couple of public policies that might tend to increase social capital? Um, yeah, this is a problem which I think we have to solve partly through private action, us doing things in our own lives, but, uh, but also it does involve uh, public policy. Um, and here are a couple of ideas. Um, education is really crucial. Uh, educated people are more likely to be connected and uh, education uh, is where kids are early in their life and what we know is, it's sort of the old principle as the twig is bent, uh, we know that kids who get involved in community activities when they're young are very likely to stay in community activities all their lives uh, and if they don't, they won't. And that means I'd, I'd put more emphasis on civic education and on practical kids' involvement in communities and I like the idea of community service um, uh, activities um, and um, and I like extracurriculars actually I mean it, it, um, it I don't know how many of you know that extracurricular activities like you know band and football and chorus and so on were all invented actually in America in that earlier period that I described around the turn of the last century in response to this same kind of problem God did not invent high school basketball um, it was invented by people who thought of it as a way to build connections among kids um, so schools are a place we could do a lot of good. Smaller schools are better than big schools for that I'm going to have purpose. to interrupt right there. Time is up for the Town Hall Forum today. Thank you, Robert Putnam.